Welcome to the 62nd edition podcast of Women's Liberation Radio News for this Thursday, June 3rd, 2021. This is Jenna, resident audio engineer at WLRN, proud woman, grateful lesbian, and a happy waitress. This month's edition focuses on detransitioning women. We'll hear an excerpt of an interview Thistle did with Carol, a 40-year-old detransitioning woman from California. We will also hear excerpts of an interview WLRN's Mayor Safina did with Tree Earth, a female liberationist and vocal detransitioner. And of course, stay tuned for the very end of today's broadcast for Sekhmet Shiawal's commentary examining the political and feminist significance of detransitioned women. The team at WLRN produces a monthly radio broadcast to break the sound barrier women are blocked by under the status quo rule of men. This blocking of women's discourse we see in all sectors of society, be they conservative, liberal, mainstream, progressive, or radical. The thread that runs through all of American politics, except for separatist feminism, is male dominance and entitlement in all spheres. To start off today's edition, we are doing things a little differently, and we'll play a piece that Jennifer Billick sent us, reporting on her research on the gender identity industry and where it's headed. Jennifer Billick is a portrait painter, radical feminist, environmental activist, and is best known as an activist who follows the money behind transgenderism, exposing the profiteering going on in the trans movement. After Jennifer's report, we'll return to our regular programming with Emily Ann Lorenzen delivering women's news from around the globe. And now for the first Billick broadcast coming at you from WLRN's airwaves, the amazing Jennifer Billick. Hi. This is Jennifer Billick from the 11th Hour Blog. That's the 11thHourBlog.com, reporting on the intersections of transgender, technology, and capitalism, otherwise known as the gender industry. I have been tracking the global industry arising out of the medical industrial complex to deconstruct sex in language, law, and in material reality for seven years. There are currently 40,000 young women on GoFundMe campaigning to have their healthy breasts amputated. And Johnson & Johnson pharmaceutical giant is all too happy to promote the surgeries as a way to express how one feels about themselves. They will remove the healthy sex organs of young women who have gender dysphoria, chest dysphoria, or those who just wish to have a more masculine appearance. They will also provide, of course, testosterone. The University of California, Los Angeles, OBGYN facility is promoting the removal of women's healthy sex organs as part of a national trend in what they euphemistically are calling gender affirmation surgeries. Young women have the options of a full hysterectomy, removing ovaries or removing ovaries along with their fallopian tubes. But the OBGYN facility doesn't stop there. Since they are sterilizing young women with these procedures, they are also offering post-op fertility options, including the freezing of eggs, embryo freezing, donor eggs, donor sperm, and a gestational carrier. By this they mean another woman rented out for womb service. Next up, we have Align Surgical Associates Incorporated in San Francisco offering their new nullification surgery for who they refer to as non-binary patients or people who feel somewhere in the middle of male and female. This surgery center is approved, among others, by WPATH, the World Professional Association of Transgender Health, 
the American Medical Association, Gender Spectrum, Gender Odyssey, the American Board of Plastic Surgery, the American Board of Plastic Surgeons, and Northwestern University in Chicago, which has funded millions of dollars by the Pritzker family, driving body dissociation globally on a mass scale by flooding all our institutions with vast sums of money to support the ideology of gender or body dissociation. Sex reassignment surgeries are projected by MarketWatch to witness exponential growth in the coming years owing to favorable government policies and rising number of cases where people are opting for sex change surgeries globally. An industry providing profits in the millions is projected to reach into the billions as soon as 2026. Gender expression is not a human rights movement. It is bold-faced corporatism. The corporate state has come for human sex, not content to deconstruct female biology into parts through language and into an identity that anyone can legally choose. It is literally desexing our material reality with surgical interventions being framed as progressive. We must begin to reframe this profiteering as the arrangement of power that it is. Thank you. Join me at TheEleventhHourBlog.com. Thank you to Jennifer Billick of The Eleventh Hour Blog for sending in that report to WLRN. We now turn to WLRN's World News segment with Emily Ann Lorenzen for this Thursday, June 3rd, 2021. The French Rugby Federation will allow trans-identified males to compete in women's rugby next season which goes against guidelines set by World Rugby, the international governing body for the sport. Last year, World Rugby announced that their research, quote, concluded that safety and fairness cannot presently be assured for women competing against trans women in contact rugby, unquote. However, World Rugby did allow for national federations to, quote, implement grassroots policies, unquote. The French Rugby Federation is the first federation in France to allow trans-identified males to play in women's sports. The men must be on hormones for at least one year and, quote, must not exceed the testosterone threshold of five nanomol per liter, unquote. The vice president of the federation said, quote, The FFR is against all forms of discrimination and works daily to ensure that everyone can exercise their free will in rugby without constraint, He obviously does not take into account women's free will to compete in rugby with other females without being forced to compete with men. In Trinidad, women are protesting the rise of femicide and a culture that supports male violence against women. In 2020, 47 women and girls were murdered, and more than 400 were reported missing. Some women were found, but others may have been trafficked into prostitution or murdered. Women took to the streets shouting, quote, We demand to be safe, and we want to walk free, not brave. Unquote. Melissa Kasim runs the group Won't Be Silenced, and she had this to say. Being a woman in Trinidad is terrifying. It's beyond scary. Because we're now afraid to walk our streets. We're afraid to go down the street to get a newspaper. We're afraid to walk to the gas station or the nearest shop. A study from the University of the West Indies made recommendations on how to help women to escape violence, how to improve police procedures, and how to have better public education campaigns to combat male violence against women. The government has ignored these recommendations. Child marriages are on the rise in Yemen. UNICEF estimates that about 4 million children were forced into marriage in Yemen last year. It is a cultural norm for 10-year-old girls to marry adult men, and often their fathers choose to groom. Since the civil war began in 2015, the situation has worsened due to poverty. Parents marry off their daughters for a bride price. These child marriages also increase domestic violence. The Yemeni Women's Union receives about 60 calls per month regarding abusive husbands, 
and many of these cases involve child marriages. Alnaud Sharion was married at 12 to a man 20 years older than her. He abused her, and after she fled to her sister's home, he attacked her with sulfuric acid, badly scarring her face. She said, quote, What happened to me is what other women also went through. We're not slaves. No matter how young we are, we all have our own thoughts. I want people around the world to understand the suffering of women like us. Unquote. In Brazil, about 803 pregnant women and postpartum women have died from COVID-19 since February 2020. A study suggested that 77.5% of the world's COVID-related maternal deaths were from Brazil. Brazil already had challenges with prenatal care and family planning, with maternal deaths more than three times the average of most countries. But the pandemic has put a deeper strain on its healthcare system. Congresswoman Samia Bomfim is seven months pregnant and is proposing legislation that would allow expectant mothers to work from home during the pandemic. The BBC conducted an investigation which found that children are able to access and sell explicit content on OnlyFans. They are able to cheat the age verification system by using stolen identification. Schools and counselors anonymously told the BBC investigators that students are selling images of themselves and buying images through the site. Many of these children are victims of prior sexual abuse, have mental health issues, or both. Missing children have also been found on OnlyFans, according to a U.S. watchdog. The U.K. government proposed the Online Safety Bill, which would fine companies £18 million, or 10% of their global turnover, if they do not keep children off their platforms. It is unclear if this bill will have enough power to force companies to have stricter age verification, and if the bill will be passed quickly enough to prevent further harm. Samoa has elected its first female prime minister, and the Supreme Court validated the election win after calls for a re-election. Biami Naomi Matafa unseated the world's second longest serving prime minister, who ruled Samoa since 1998. She held a ceremony outside the log parliament as the former prime minister refused to cede power, symbolizing Samoa's historic resistance to female leadership. In Jerusalem, three women started a campaign called Not In My Name against the violence in Jewish Arab cities. They created a WhatsApp group where 300 women joined within hours. The women began taking photos of themselves with Not In My Name written in English, Hebrew, or Arabic on their hands. One of the women who started the group, Zion Moses, said, quote, for years, I have felt that I have nothing to say because it's so complicated, but it's so clear that all of this violence is done by men and that we, as women, live in a different way. We have something to say here. With our bodies and voices, we can say something else." Unquote. A few Muslim women are in the group, but not many since it is difficult for Arab women to join an initiative by Jewish women during this time of extreme tension. The science journal The Lancet has begun a study of cardiovascular disease in women. Cardiovascular disease is the leading cause of death in women, but despite this fact, it has been, quote, understudied, underrecognized, underdiagnosed, and undertreated, unquote. An international team of experts and leaders in the field will study with a focus to reduce cardiovascular disease in women by 2030. The Karlinska Hospital in Sweden will no longer prescribe hormonal interventions to patients under 18 starting May 2021. Puberty blockers and cross-sex hormones may only be given to minors in a research setting approved by Sweden's Ethics Review Board. The minor's maturity level would need to be assessed to determine if they can provide meaningful, informed consent. Minors and guardians would need to be provided adequate disclosures of the risks and uncertainties as well. It is unclear if minors under the age of 16 would be allowed to participate in these studies. 
the Supreme Court has agreed to take up an abortion case next term regarding a Mississippi law that banned most abortions after 15 weeks. The law only allows exceptions for medical emergencies or quote-unquote severe fetal abnormality and not for instances of rape or incest. Many states have passed abortion restrictions, such as South Carolina, Oklahoma, Idaho, Arkansas, Montana, and Texas. This increased resistance against Roe v. Wade has pushed the Supreme Court to revisit the issue. Abortion rights advocates fear the outcome, given the court's 6-3 conservative majority. Tennessee passed the Tennessee Accommodations for All Children Act, which allows students to request reasonable accommodation to access a bathroom or changing facility for their privacy needs, as long as it is not used solely by members of the opposite sex. This would protect single-sex spaces while also being sensitive to gender non-conforming students' needs. Any student can request these accommodations for any reason, including social anxiety, body image, or bullying. Tennessee also passed a bill that requires businesses to post a notice if they allow individuals to choose which restrooms to use, regardless of sex. The German parliament rejected a self-ID bill on May 19th. This is a victory for radical feminists in Germany and globally as they set a precedent for possible future self-ID bills. England, Spain, and Japan have also rejected self-ID bills in the past. On May 26th, a group of women testified before the Wisconsin Senate Committee on Human Services, Children, and Families regarding Wisconsin Assembly Bills 195 and 196 bills that would impact Wisconsin's girls' and women's opportunities to play their sport in an equitable environment. Save Women's Sports, along with women from the Women Human Rights Campaign, testified to keep women's sports for women. Here's a clip from Beth Steltzer's testimony. I have moms telling me that their girls are giving up. They're not even coming to the starting line. And those women call me a warrior for being in this spot today. And I gladly take that title because my words are my sword. The truth is my shield. And today this room feels like a battle to protect reality. So forgive my sharpness and my sword. I would rather be rude than a liar. Despite death threats, I stand here today because there is great power in that truth. Simply put, identities don't play sports. Bodies play sports. Set a precedent that tells women and girls they matter. We are women here saying no. Why is that not enough? Tune in to WLRN's YouTube channel for coverage of the athletes' May 26 testimonials in Wisconsin. I will be covering the Sovereign Women Speak event on August 20th through August 23rd in Lakewood, Washington. This will be a fantastic event with notable speakers, such as Megan Murphy, Kara Dansky, Beth Steltzer, and more. For more information, check out SovereignWomenCircle.com, and I hope to see you there. That concludes WLRN's World News segment for Thursday, June 3rd, 2021. I'm Emily Ann Lorenzen. Share your news stories, announcements, and tips with us by emailing info at womensliberationradionews.com and let us know what's going on. That was Are You a Lady by Bratmobile, a song suggested by our next guest on the program. 
In this excerpt, you'll hear Thistle speaking with Carol, a 40-year-old detransitioned lesbian who lives in California with her wife and son. Carol spent four years identifying as a trans man and undergoing medical transition, including ingesting hormones and having her breasts surgically removed. During that time, she was perceived as a male in social and professional settings. Now, in the process of reclaiming her womanhood, Carol is focusing her energy on helping other D-trans people find a community, particularly women who don't conform to gender stereotypes. So welcome to WLRN, Carol. Oh, thank you for having me. Why don't we get started with you just telling our listeners a little bit about yourself, when you transitioned, how old you were, and what was your life like at that time? Like, what was going on in your life that pushed you towards transitioning? Okay. Um, I was 34, almost 35, when I started um, the transition process, when I started taking testosterone. Four months into taking testosterone, I had a double mastectomy. I was first exposed to the transgender kind of ideology or the idea of being trans when I was only about 21. In the lesbian community, it uh, kind of seemed like overnight, all of the all of my friends who were just butch women suddenly started identifying as trans men. Um, most of them didn't transition because at that time, uh, there was some pretty heavy gatekeeping still involved in the therapeutic community. So transition wasn't easy, but they all identified that way. And that's the seed kind of got planted then. And I, I, from that point on, kind of self-identified as really a man, even though I didn't say it to anybody other than my wife and no one really, I didn't demand, you know, pronoun usage or anything like that. But in my head, that's what soothed me was to think of myself as a man, not a lesbian. And then fast forward to 32, 33, me and my wife had just adopted uh, our son. I became a parent for the first time. It was very stressful. Me and my wife's relationship wasn't going well. Her brother and my very close friend committed suicide. And it really kind of drove the family into a crisis mode. And my wife was very much in crisis. And I felt like I was drowning. I felt suicidal. I wanted out of my life and I didn't know how to get out of my life. And I latched back on to this idea of transition and that if I transitioned, I would feel better. I wouldn't have to deal with the dysphoria on top of everything else. I have to say it wasn't a conscious thought of, I want to escape my life, so I'm going to transition. It was more like I just felt very, very overwhelmed by everything and thought that the reason I was having so much depression and so much angst and just hating myself was because I needed to transition. Okay. Even though clearly a suicide in the family or, you know, of someone very close to you is a cause for grief and, you know, all kinds of problems to arise, but it, you somehow switched the focus on that to your yourself and your body dysphoria as the cause of the stress that you were experiencing at that time. Yeah, it was, it's, you know, I've always had, um, I mean, I would say since I was around 13 or so, I've always had what would be categorized as uh, sex dysphoria. So it's, it's not anything new that I've dealt with. I, however, didn't, you know, there was no name for it or anything. I just, I was uncomfortable with my body, you know. <laughs> um, it wasn't until, you know, trans, trans ideology kind of came along and said, oh, you're uncomfortable with your body because you're in the wrong body. And I think that's easier. Personally, I think that was easier for me to face up to and say, oh, yes, I'm really a man trapped in a woman's body than to recognize that I had been abused and harmed throughout my life. And that led me to be so uncomfortable with myself. Okay, so, the, so, so the dysphoria was always there. And I think everything else just drove it, drove my depression worse, which just aggravated every mental health issue I had. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, social media also played a role in your decision. I was reading in your uh, article you have on the Fourth Wave Now website. Can you talk about the videos that you were watching at that time? Oh, yeah. I, 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 I chart this up a little, I mean, everybody falls into this, I think, you know, watching YouTube videos of, of your favorite thing or whatever. And, uh, I chart this up a little bit to my ADHD, which I haven't been, I wasn't diagnosed with till already two years into transitioning. Um, but I became very obsessed with 
transition. And then I became very obsessed with watching uh, transition YouTubes, like, you know, females transitioning to men and the, their timelines and the surgeries they'd have and all that kind of stuff. And I mean, I spent a good year probably just locked in my bedroom for most of the day, just depressed watching these videos. And I, I really, it was very detrimental to my, my ability to kind of reason and to really get my mental health under control, which was the true culprit of my issues. Mm-hmm. And so you made the decision to transition and you went to a doctor and got a prescription for testosterone. Walk us through it. I, I actually, I wasn't completely sure I still wanted, I was wanting to transition. I wasn't sure. Uh, I, I felt like I was probably trans, but I wasn't sure. I really just was kind of waffling on it. I was really, I didn't want to medically transition. It scared me, but I felt like that was the only option I had to feel better. And so I actually did go see a therapist, even though I didn't have to in my state. I could have just walked into a Planned Parenthood and got testosterone probably the same day. But I did go see a therapist and I was saw her for about three or four months. And when I went to see her, the first thing I said to her in our first visit was, I think I might be trans, but I don't know. Well, I need help f- figuring it out. Well, fast forward four months and she pretty much just affirmed, affirmed, affirmed everything, didn't question anything. And really, it kind of, I think, encouraged me down the path of transition as really the only way to deal with my issues. Okay. And so, you know, then, and she, uh, she also wrote me a letter for, to be able to transition, although she didn't need to, it's just kind of one of those things. They still Are you kind still of in do. touch with this therapist at all? I'm not. No, no, I haven't been in touch since I had my mastectomy. Cause as soon as I scheduled the mastectomy, she was like, okay, you're good to go. See you later. <laughs> so do you feel abandoned by this therapist? Yeah, you know, not really. I really was in a very, po- I felt like I was in a very positive place. And I, I felt like after my second, I felt really happy and everything seemed to be looking up. So that was fine. In hindsight, now after detransitioning and looking back, I've had to work through some real, real hatred towards her because oh. she didn't, she didn't help me. She, she made it worse. And she didn't ask any questions she should have. She never asked any questions about my me being a lesbian. She didn't ask questions about homo, internalized homophobia or homophobia I had experienced or childhood abuse or anything. Nothing of that was ever talked is about. There, is there any legal recourse for this? Did you consider suing her? I did. And I did look into it. It's very, very hard to sue a therapist. It's very hard, and especially it's very hard in California because it is a kind of a one-year like length of time you can sue a doctor and therapists fall into the same category as a doctor and it's it had already been four or five years since i saw her yeah and then on top of that there is no actual guidelines uh for helping people or for dealing with people who have uh, dysphoria or who are trans identified. There are no like guidelines or, or, well, there's guidelines, but there's no rules. No one's held accountable to follow any guidelines. Mm-hmm. So uh, there's been, there'd be nothing for me to point to as anything she did wrong that would hold up in court. What do you think the social factors were for you growing up that led you to go down this path? I would say if I had to point to the number one issue um, it would be my childhood abuse. I was very physically abused and emotionally abused and to a certain extent, sexual sexual abuse. Well, there was no touching, but it was a sexualized kind of thing, um, you know, exposure to stuff that I shouldn't have been exposed to. And that started at about age four. So I had severe physical abuse from my mother and my stepfather until the age of nine. And then um, my stepfather was out of the picture by then. So most of the very harsh physical abuse stopped. But my mother was still a very narcissistic, abusive, homophobic woman and a very religious as well. Um, so I think that was the main thing that that the abuse caused me to dissociate from my body very young because to survive a physical abuse, often we have to. And I think I dissociated very, very young from my body. I never felt connected to my body. And, you know, that's one of those key things you hear so many trans people say and even trans supportive therapists say, oh, you know, you don't feel like you belong in your body. Your body feels wrong. Well, there's many reasons one could feel that way. And I think I felt that way from abuse. Kind of the second part to that is the the homophobia. My, my mother was very homophobic and um, 
would point out to me very young people she thought were gay and and warn me that they would try to kidnap me or molest me or <laughs> do all these kinds of things. Um, also, I was quite a tomboy. So from a very young age, I would say seven, my mother would often tell me I needed to stop acting like a boy, act like a girl. I would walk like a boy. I should walk like a girl. So I was very hyper aware and conditioned to kind of be aware of these sex or gender stereotypes and to understand that I wasn't performing them correctly. Right. Let's let's continue talking about homophobia and how transgender ideology has actually a homophobic element to it. How has transgender ideology impacted the the lesbian community? Before you transitioned, talk about what you saw going on and then how your community was impacted while you were transitioning and then how it impacted you and your community after. Okay. Well, I, as an older person, so when I transitioned, I, I wasn't too involved in my local gay community much anymore about a person to person level, because, you know, I think that happens to a lot of us <laughs> lesbians. We get married, we settle down and we don't really go out and do much anymore. But when I was, when I was younger, um, early twenties, when I first came out in, in the community, that's when I would say the first, or maybe the second, I don't know, but a big wave of, of identifying as trans came through about 2002. And that was when, you know, it seemed like overnight, all the butch women just started to identify as men. And I, I was very taken back by that. And I think really it just boiled down to stereotypes. It boiled down to them not wanting to be perceived as butch, but wanting to be perceived as men. Because it, it, and, it was and maybe not wanting to be perceived as lesbian, not wanting to be perceived as gay. Is that a part of it, too? I, I think so. The, the big thing. <laughs> yeah, I remember the, the big thing with that is um, calling myself a lesbian now is is I do that on purpose because I was always so scared to say that. And when I first came out, we didn't use lesbian anymore. No, no woman I was ever around, except if they were much older, used the term lesbian. Everybody called themselves gay because lesbian just seemed like icky. I use it now because it's, it's for me, it's more of a political statement, too. And it's it's something that needs to be, I think, brought back. So, yeah, I think there's 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 been I mean, the gay community has has internalized homophobia. Obviously, that's we're not without it. And I think that's why we feel so hard for trans ideology. So you transitioned. You, after four months of testosterone treatments, you had your breasts removed. Mm -hmm. You remained on testosterone for how long after that? About four years. I was on total, a uh, total of four years. And what happened to your body during those <laughs> four years? Um, well, I, I like to joke that I never really slept in those four years because testosterone is, uh, it gives you a lot of energy. And it it really it's a mood enhancer, too. It makes you feel better. So if you're a depressed woman and you get on testosterone, you're going to feel better. And that's kind of that's why a lot of like the therapist told me, she told me, well, just try it, because if it's meant to be, if it works for you, you'll know because you'll feel better. Well, that's true, but it's not true for the reason they're saying it's true. It's true because it's a it's a controlled substance that makes you feel better, like any drug will do. Mm hmm. Uh, I started losing my hair pretty quickly. I also gained a lot of body hair really quickly, and that's just kind of the turn of genetics, which was which was pretty good for passing. Once you have a beard, it doesn't matter how small you are or what your voice sounds like. Most people who aren't in the know about transitioning are gonna just assume you're a weird guy hmm. or, or a gay man. I think I got I think I got seen as a gay man more than anything else mm -hmm. because of the way I talked and and mannerisms and stuff like that. I also experienced a lot of uh, uterine and pelvic pain because of the atrophy. And that started about a year in. The doctor told me that was normal. I could just have a hysterectomy. Oh <laughs> but I, I didn't, luckily, did not have a hysterectomy. I'm very thankful for that. I had a severe vaginal atrophy. By the time I stopped testosterone, it was just so painful every single day. Also, I my um, cholesterol had climbed pretty significantly. 
that last blood test I took before stopping testosterone, it was into the, the range of them going to need to prescribe me medication um, to bring it down. Um, my blood glucose was rising, so I was going to have uh, issues with diabetes. And this was in the span of four years. When I started, I was healthy. And I, I've always, I've never been a huge, like, junk food person or anything like that. I walk daily, so I'm not an unhealthy person. And in the span of four years, I went from being fine, healthy, to having, like, all these issues. And I stopped the testosterone, and I had blood tests three months after my last shot, and all those numbers dropped. That, that's that's wonderful news. Is that yeah. a, is that a normal thing to happen when you start detransitioning? Like right away, you notice a physical difference. Oh yeah, I mean like within the first two weeks of of stopping testosterone, like and I tapered off, so it took about two months to be completely done with it. Because mm-hmm. um, if you just stop cold turkey, your body is going to really freak out, and and you're going to have a really tough time. So mm-hmm. it was best to taper off slowly. So I tapered off and I was under the care of an endocrinologist. And so once I had that final shot after tapering, within two or three weeks, my vaginal atrophy had almost disappeared. Like I was surprised that my body kind of bounced back as well as it did, especially for my age, you know, being already in my late thirties. <laughs> if you could talk to every woman out there who is identifying as a trans man and has maybe been on testosterone for two years, three years, and they're considering detransitioning, what, what would you say to them? I would say that it is probably the most healthy thing you can do, both for your body and and your, your mental state, because testosterone and, and living that kind of life kind of, in my opinion, it's, it felt to me like living a lie every day. And it, not to say it didn't help my, it didn't help me in some ways, but it did harm in other ways. And to me, it was just a wash. So ultimately, the healthiest thing you can do is to leave your body alone. Leave it alone and let it exist as it's meant to exist. The solution to disassociation from the body is reconnection to the body, right? Mm-hmm. How How have you reconnected to your body through all of this? I have to say that the thing that's really helped me is to understand the reasons why I dissociated, to understand what the dissociation is, and then to get reacquainted and tied in with with my femaleness, with being a woman, with embracing that. And I, I have to say that's where radical feminist ideas and um, support groups and things like that have really helped. If it wasn't for radical feminist ideas for me, I don't know if I would have detransitioned quite as well as I did. I think I probably would have eventually just from the health issues, but I also needed that social awareness. I needed that social change, that different perspective to be able to embrace myself. And I've found a lot of healing in the detrans radical feminist community, especially. I'm only happy when it That was Only Happy When It Rains, from Garbage. Now we turn to an interview Mare did with Tree Earth. Tree is a D-trans lesbian separatist homesteader and lives with her wife, Rain, in the mountains of the Appalachie. She's an earth caretaker and loves gardening and growing her own food. Tree believes meditation is the key to a joyful life and is a diligent practitioner. A female liberationist, Tree is creating a world for women, by women, so that we may heal, live in peace, and reside in symbiosis with the one true Mother Earth. This past year has been really wild. Um, 
almost everyone that I used to be friends with and talk to, all my queer and trans friends, do not talk to me anymore. Most of them just silently, you know, they unfollowed me. And I have moved away from about two years ago from the city that I was living in. So it, it was a little easier. Like, I wasn't around all those people and had to, like, you know, detransition. Right. Um, and only, a, say, about a handful of women that that I used to be friends with still talk to me and they see, you know, they see what I see. Right. So that's really painful to see like, oh, these people only support me when I'm like them or I'm doing what, what they want me to be doing or like following the, na- the mainstream narrative. Right. But as soon as I start talking about the shadow, which is my specialty, n- nobody wants to have anything to do with me. You know, it was this. It was really shocking to see how quickly, like, I was disowned right, and shut out. Whenever I have just as much of a trans experience as any of these other people, I just have a different way of viewing it now. And, and people don't like that. And they really try to silence me. Um, and I see them doing that with, with, with all D-trans people. I'm curious, too, have you managed to find a network of um, other people who have detransitioned or another community that's supportive of your decisions now? Mm-hmm. So I um, feel very supported by radical feminists. Now, there's a lot of problematic people in those groups, too. And, like, anyone can call themselves a radical feminist. Um Personally, I identify as a female liberationist because there's no confusion about what that means. People get a little confused about what radical feminism is, and I'm not really into that. I haven't met a whole lot of D-trans people, but through the radical feminist community, that's where I've met the most. And the sense that I get is they just kind of want to be left alone. They don't want, like, they've been through so much, like, they don't want people harassing them, like, even though it still happens. I, on the other hand, don't care. I'm really loud and outspoken, and I'm tired of being quiet about things, so. It seems like that's a part of your growth process, too, has been how outspoken you are in social media about who you inherently are as a person, as a woman. Yes, yes absolutely, and I think it's so important for people to see that, like, there's no right or wrong way to be a woman. Mm-hmm. You just have to be born into a female body. That's it. All this other shit that we put on it is all lies that the patriarchy tells us to keep us in line. You know what I mean? I do. Mm-hmm. To keep us subservient to the patriarchy. And I'm not with that. I mean, just feeling like I was screaming inside my whole life. And finally, I said, I can't take it anymore. All this that I've been through and all the just, even just the societal levels of gaslighting that are going on, I can't just sit here and watch this. I don't care who hates me. I don't care who threatens me. Like, nobody can harm me because I'm protected. I know that I'm protected because... I'm speaking from my heart, and I'm speaking on the truths that I see. Right. Right. And I have been threatened, I mean, <laughs> so many times. I've been, uh, you know, like yelled at by former friends, called a turf, which is just wild. And, like, how are you going to call me? <laughs> how are you going to call someone with a trans experience a trans exclusionary? Like, like that makes no sense. And the thing is, they just, anyone who goes against their narrative, they just call them names, you know? And I guess as far as some other things that woke me up when I was transing myself and really in that, I noticed that, like, I was being silenced and males that were trans-identified, were being exalted. 
and they were being allowed to speak on women's experience, but I wasn't, you know? That was enraging, and that's not okay, because no male could ever understand what it's like to be in a female body. I have compassion for people that experience dysphoria, but to try to appropriate, like, what it is to be a woman, basically with all misogynist stereotypes, no, I'm not here for that. Mm -hmm. And I'm constantly being censored for speaking out about that. Like, Mm -hmm. constantly. They hate it. There's no respect for women within that ideology at all. There's no respect for lesbians. Like, I never gave up my sexuality. I was always a lesbian. Mm -hmm. You know, I might have identified as queer for a while, but there's no way I was ever going to date a man or a male person regardless of their gender identity. Like, my sexuality didn't magically change. Right. You know, and that's one of the other things that that really helped me just more easily let go of the trans identity and all of that is like, there's so much misogyny and homophobia. Like, how could I ever support something like that? How could I ever support the level of like they're throwing women and lesbians under the bus? constantly gaslighting us about our experiences, silencing us, and then appropriating our experiences that are often very traumatic. Like, that's so wrong. It often feels like a men's rights movement to me, just gender ideology as a whole. Yes, I 100% agree with you. And if you follow the money, you will Mm -hmm. see that the people behind this are rich, White men. Mm -hmm. How is it not a men's rights movement? Right. And they got everyone brainwashed. Mm -hmm. And and the human mind is very easy to trick, especially with the level that media has gotten to these days. Right. And I think especially when women are taught to be kind and empathetic. And I I actually think it's one of our strengths in a lot of ways, but I also Mm -hmm. think easily be used against us when we don't use um, sort of that gift of fear that we have. We know who men and women are by looking at them for a reason. Right. Exactly. You're absolutely right about that. They prey on our socialization, you know, like, and you can see it in the way that like trans identified males will react. They, They often become very violent Right. Towards women who question them. How is that? Like, what? And then women are out here just trying to, like, appease them and appease them. And, and like you said, that's so, such a part of the problem. There are so many women out here that do not agree with this gender stuff. They are just bullied into it. They don't feel like they can speak up. They're afraid. They're afraid of these violent males. Mm-hmm. And I don't blame them. Right, exactly. I, I'm not afraid, but I'm I'm different. You know what I mean? Right. I'm just tired of being afraid. <laughs> I think that you've reached a good point if you are tired <laughs> right of being afraid and tired of being quiet, you know? Right. And it's like, you know what? I trained my whole life in Taekwondo. Mm-hmm. You know, one thing, one good thing that I did get from my dad. He taught me how to defend myself. He put me in Taekwondo. I'm so grateful for that. I have no doubt in my mind that I could defend myself against anyone. Like, Mm -hmm. that helps me not be afraid. And that's something that I would like to eventually be able to, like, give to other women is teaching them self-defense. You know, like, it it will give people more confidence to to stand up Mm -hmm. to these men. Because... They're not as tough as they act like. They they scream and cry a lot, you know? Right. And, yes, we women do receive a lot of violence from them, but we're also socialized to not do things that make us strong. You know what I mean? Like, women can be strong. We can defend ourselves. We don't have to be afraid of these men. Mm-hmm. We don't have to be afraid of these this whole group of people. And, unfortunately, it's not just men. There are a lot of women that are brainwashed into defending 
this male supremacist ideology. Mm-hmm. I really like that you mentioned your self-defense practice. And in just getting to know you over the last week or so, it almost seems like your focus is around self-reliance just as much as self-defense is. Can you share a little bit about that and your philosophy? Um, you know, I, I know you before, so about around homesteading even, I'd, I'd love to hear about that. Sure. Yeah, I mean, I guess part of it is it's not just self-defense. I have a very strong meditation and spiritual practice, mm-hmm. um, and I've I've had that for about 10 years now. And, you know, I've had a lot of um, trauma-induced mental health issues most of my life. Like, I deal with CPTSD. I've been to so many different doctors and therapists. They just want to throw you on medicine and all this crap they don't want to actually help they don't want to get to the root just like with everything no one wants to look at the shadow right so you know i i am very self-reliant and that comes from my practice i i practice a lot i go in in to my internal world and i shine a light on all the shadow that's in there no matter how painful it is and i'm constantly doing this process you know and I've gone to this point where I've built up a lot of practice and it's almost like every single aspect of my life is meditation, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's probably what even led me to, I mean, I've always had this desire to have a space to get, to get back to the land, to live with the forest. Like humans are meant to be connected, you know, connected to the earth. Right. They cover everything with concrete, and they disconnect us in so many ways. Yeah. Um, so what do you want to know about homesteading? <laughs> well, <laughs> when you talk about homesteading and um, just the way that you're connecting to the earth, what I'm really curious about is, do you consider that sort of like a healing practice? I, I hear you talk about mm. meditation. And and so I'm sort of more wondering about it in that way. And I also think, at least in my experience as a woman, um, I was not taught to necessarily work with my hands or to, mm-hmm. like, I was that I could do like small crafts or baking or cooking, but mm-hmm. not like the real work and getting into mm-hmm. the earth. And I think there's a reason for that. I think that's a lot of socialization. So yes. I'm just curious what your thoughts are around all of that. Yeah. I mean, what you said, we girls and women are socialized to not do things that make us strong, you know, and then the women that do are constantly harassed. And I was just, I was always very much like just not having it. I was outside, I was running around, I was doing all the things that I wasn't supposed to be doing as a girl. And those are the things that I feel like, I, I mean, one of the things that I feel really good at is is I feel very physically strong. I always have. I think all women are capable of feeling that way because right. we are all very physically strong. We're just taught that we're not. Mm-hmm. Um, I think also it helped that, like, I did take Taekwondo. Like, at least my parents gave me that. And I think that helped me with with being more physically active and wanting to do those things. And as far as, like, homesteading goes, it's very much that. It's very much using your body, using your muscles, just, like, being outside, being in the dirt, connecting with the earth. You know, it takes a lot of strength to, like, collect all of your own firewood and chop it all up and be constantly doing that all year, moving it, stacking it, even just, like, Having your hands in the dirt connects you to the earth and grounds you and heals you. It's very healing to be in this space. Mm -hmm. I grew up in a pretty big city in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. I guess it's like a small big city. I don't know. Um, And, you know, now I'm in the middle of the mountains in the forest and I'm surrounded by trees. And I think that has helped facilitate my awareness, you know. My waking up. Um, there's not all that city and all those people to to distract from. And I do realize that that's uh, a privilege and a blessing to even have access to that. Um, it's not something I ever thought I would have access to. 
but I have been blessed. Um, It definitely changes. I think it changes one's consciousness. Mm -hmm. You don't get bombarded with as much of that matrix stuff. Right. Right? Like, now going into a town, even a small town, oh, it's so draining. I mean, I am like, this is where I belong. I've always belonged here. It manifested. It manifested for me, and I am grateful. It does sound like you're in a beautiful space now that's just working for for you and and your life. Thank you so, so much for your time. I I am just delighted that um, you were willing to share your story with all of us and to to be vulnerable about it. I am sure that wasn't easy, but I appreciate you so much. So thank you for your time. Thank you for having me. This. 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 Is WLRN. 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 Women's Liberation Radio News. Women's Liberation Radio News. Women's Liberation Radio News. Women's Liberation Radio News. feminists, gender-critical, and gender-abolitionist women discuss transgenderism and transactivism. They tend to spend most of their time talking about men in drag who pretend to be women. This makes sense as it's that male sector of the transgender population doing the most harm to women and girls. But we can't and shouldn't neglect to consider the meteoric rise of female participation in transgenderism. Males have blatantly misogynistic and often sexually perverse reasons for pretending to be the opposite sex, reasons that express the power they have as males. But women and girls who attempt to disguise themselves as men arrive at transgenderism for totally different reasons, all of which boil down to powerlessness. Detransition is the secret trans activists desperately want to keep from mainstream society. It's the wrench in the trans activism machine. They claim people are born transgender, their bodies mismatched with whatever internal essence informs them of their true sex, and many of these trans activists go so far as to claim trans people were always the sex they pretend to be, even before they realized it. Gender identity is supposed to be as innate, involuntary, and unchangeable as eye color or skin color. Transgenderism, according to these activists, isn't a choice, and it has nothing whatsoever to do with the environment a person grows up in. Detransitioning and the renouncement of transgender identity that usually follows refute the trans activist narrative about the nature of gender identity, and in the case of detransitioned women, exposes the fact that sex dysphoria has more to do with one's culture and personal experiences of misogynistic and lesbian-hating oppression than with some inborn incompatibility of mind and body. The lives of detransitioned women will, in the long term, show that it is possible and preferable for women and girls to find emotional, psychological, and political ways of dealing with the pain and distress of being female in this world, rather than divorce themselves mentally from their biological sex. Misogyny has always been a deeply, wholly physical experience for women and girls. Our bodies are ground zero for our misogynistic oppression. One of the biggest and most offensive cons pulled off by the gender identity cult is the suggestion that womanhood and girlhood have nothing to do with our bodies, that misogyny is a form of oppression targeting femininity rather than femaleness. Our female bodies are not the full extent of who we are, but our female bodies are the foundation of who we are and of how we experience the world. However we dress up, however we choose to behave, whatever our hobbies and interests, we are subjected to male misogyny, to rape and other forms of sexual assault, to forced pregnancy and physical assault, to murder because of our female bodies. Males want to fuck our bodies, not our performance of femininity. Those of us women who choose not to perform femininity are no less female and no less vulnerable to male violence and sexual terrorism, not to mention sexist discrimination, than the female celebrities who strut around in highly feminine clothing, heels, and makeup. Women and girls who buy into gender identity do so under the pretense that their manipulation of their physical appearance, their defeminization, 
will deliver them from sexism and misogyny, but especially from the tangible, physical violence and sexual violation we all grow up knowing is possible and fearing. Maybe for the handful of women who can physically pass as male, this escape can be realized, but for many women who attempt sex transition, it's obvious to the world that they're defeminized women rather than biological males. Those women are not only trying to fool others, but themselves. A woman or a girl attempting to change her body enough to successfully pass as male is ultimately attempting to compensate for the world around her failing to change. She doesn't want to live out her whole life coping with her femaleness in a violently woman-hating world, a world where men hold all the power and she recognizes that the only possible way out is hiding her female sex successfully. Hiding it is all she can do. She cannot become genuinely male. While she tries to pull off this illusion, the people around her continue to be unapologetically, aggressively male supremacist and misogynistic. If she is a lesbian, her attempt to pretend to be a heterosexual man does nothing to reduce the amount of anti-lesbian hatred and prejudice in society. It's not any one woman's responsibility to solve heteropatriarchy, nor can any one woman successfully do so. But the point is, women and girls who plunge headlong into transgenderism and try to access male privilege are playing into the heteropatriarchy, allowing the men and women who drive it to go about their business unchallenged. A woman or a girl disassociating from her femaleness, particularly if she is a lesbian or naturally unfeminine in her style, preferences, and interests, reinforces the heterosexual gender system that affects all of womankind, whether she means to or not. When a woman detransitions, she makes the choice to face herself and her body. Her choice to detransition, to acknowledge her unchangeable biological sex, is the first step toward completely rejecting the male lie about what women are and how we're supposed to live. Not every detransitioned woman will become a radical feminist, but there is potential there, in every detransitioned woman, for feminist consciousness to emerge. Most women and girls have a toxic and hostile relationship with their bodies precisely because their bodies are the primary site of their oppression. Learning to make peace with our female bodies, despite all the poisonous messaging we receive and the trauma we may endure, is a key aspect of developing a strong, positive relationship with ourselves as women. It is a lifelong practice and process that many women never bother to take on or succeed at. And for the detransitioned woman, the decision to detransition and re-identify as female is the beginning of that process. In many ways, detransitioned women have a steeper hill to climb in repairing their relationship to their bodies than the rest of us do. They have a longer way to go, psychologically and emotionally, than women who have always accepted their femaleness. But detransitioned women are also, in a way, fortunate compared to the rest of the female population, as they understand the gender scam intimately and how unbelievably sexist, restrictive, and heterosexist gender and femininity in particular is for women. I'm not sure if it's fair or accurate to say that detransitioning is a feminist act for women, but it's definitely a self-loving act, which is more important anyway. Aside from the fact that long-term artificial hormone use can create serious medical conditions and complications for women, it isn't possible to live your life in constant and fragile denial of your body and even your sexuality without harboring some amount of self-hatred. Males teach us that self-hatred from birth, and we nurture it ourselves. If all women and girls grew up in a female-loving, even female supremacist society, where rape doesn't exist and where lesbians are celebrated, the idea of pretending to be male at the cost of our physical health would be unthinkable to all of us. We will, of course, never see that world, so the task of unlearning our internalized misogyny and self-loathing will always be difficult. The choice detransitioned women originally made to buy into transgenderism and use it to escape misogynistic oppression is an understandable one. So their willingness to change again, mentally and politically, when they are surrounded by powerful incentive to spend the rest of their lives IDing as trans, is brave.
Thanks for listening to WLRN's 62nd edition podcast on detransitioned women. WLRN would like to thank our guests this month for sharing their views on transitioning and the effect gender has had in their lives. Thank you so much to Tree Earth and to Carol for speaking with us on this topic. June is Pride Month. For our next show, we will reflect on 2021 Pride events. Our handcrafted podcasts always come out the first Thursday of the month, so look for it on Thursday, July 1st. If you'd like to receive our newsletter that notifies you when our podcasts are released, please sign up for our newsletter on the WLRN website, womensliberationradionews.com. Stay strong in the struggle, and thanks for listening. This is Mare, signing off on another WLRN podcast. If you like what you're hearing and would like to donate to the cause of Feminist Community Radio, please visit our website and click on the Donate button. Our new website was recently redeveloped with the help of one of our incredible WLRN volunteers. Thanks, Anonymous! Last month, we celebrated five years of being your grassroots, radical feminist, volunteer-powered community radio station, and we thank you, dear sister, for staying tuned. Celebrate with us by snagging a new piece of merch over at womensliberationradionews.com. Until next time, this is Thistle, signing off. This is Jenna signing off on another edition of WLRN's monthly handcrafted podcast. You can find us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Spinster, Overit, and SoundCloud, in addition to our WordPress site. If you're interested in joining our team, we're always looking for new volunteers to conduct interviews, write blog posts, post to our Facebook and other social media pages, create videos, produce audio, and do other tasks to keep us moving forward as a collective of media activist women. Just click the volunteer link in the right-hand drop-down menu on our website. Thanks for listening. And this is Sekhmet Shiaul. Our monthly podcasts are always crafted with tender loving care and in solidarity with women worldwide. Thanks for your support. We would love to hear from you, so please comment, like, and share today's episode widely.